Let us turn together, please, in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Acts. to read with the first verse of Acts 2 as we continue in our considerations of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I read large portions of this chapter so as to put us in the historical setting of the coming and the gifts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This morning our subject is the gift of the Spirit and we will be dealing with that very vast and critical topic as we seek to set into perspective the biblical doctrine and to save ourselves from errors that, that are rampant on the right hand and on the left and to prepare our own hearts that we may enter into a full experience of the work of the Spirit of God, which it is our right and privilege to have by virtue of the death of Christ for his people. So please follow as I read, beginning with verse 1, and then we'll do some skipping, so carefully heed as I read, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And when the day of Pentecost was now come, or fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, as of the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues parting asunder, like as a fire, and it sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then the writer speaks of the various nations from which the men who were gathered on this day had come and how that they were perplexed as to the phenomenon as they heard the noise and they gathered round and assumed that these men were drunk with early morning new wine. But in verse 14, the Apostle Peter continues by saying, He stood up with the eleven, lifting up his voice, and spoke forth to them, You men of Judea, and all you that are dwelling at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and give ear unto my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, It shall be in the last days, saith God, I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my servants and on my handmaidens in those days will I pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord come, that great and notable day. 
And it shall be that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter enters into a declaration of the recent events surrounding the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God has raised him from the dead in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. And then in verse 33, he speaks the significant words regarding the event which they have witnessed, having spoken of the resurrection of Christ. In verse 33, he says, Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which you now see and hear. And so Peter states to the people who wondered at this phenomenon that it is no less than the Holy Spirit in fulfillment with Old Testament prophecy sent by Christ as he himself promised by virtue of his ascended authority at the right hand of God following his obedient death for the sins of his people. And so to put in historical perspective, Peter has explained this event as the unprecedented, unrepeated, unrepeatable historical event of sending the Holy Spirit upon the church, upon people of all flesh, males and females, in fulfillment with the scriptural promise. Now again, having read that and seen something of a brief introduction, let us pray and ask God's help in the preaching of the truth. Our Father, we confess our utter inability both to understand and to enunciate the truth, even the least truth of your word. And Lord, we are acquainted with and surrounded by infirmity of heart and mind and flesh. We are your servants and desire, O God, that we be pleasing to you in all that we do and that your people be able to understand and to comprehend what we say. Lord, may the words that we speak be in conformity to truth and may those that hear submit to it and be blessed by it. Give your spirit, O God, O oh Lord, help us to focus upon these holy truths. Teach us your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we have been in our study considering the very crucial doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now if, you'd, if one of the brethren would like uh, to let the lady know that we have a nursery, that maybe that would be of help. Uh, so if a deacon or, a, or an usher would let her know, we'd appreciate that, Charlie. Maybe she doesn't know that there's an availability there. Now, we're speaking of the subject of the Holy Spirit. I draw your attention to remembering what the issue was as we have come to this study. I ask you to give your full attention so that you not miss the continuance of our study. The Lord has laid upon us this very difficult study. I believe that I have said to you that I feel unworthy and unable adequately in myself to grasp it and to explain it, but we believe God has helped us in laying the foundation. It is my desire today to continue in drawing to a close and drawing closer together, elaborating in more detail the work of the Spirit. Without the continuance 
of the supply of the Holy Spirit, the church itself must absolutely cease. No saint could live without the regular and continued ministry of the Spirit. No human being could breathe without the supplies of the Spirit. The Psalms say that he gives breath to all things. Without him, nothing survives. He is the operator and the efficient cause of everything excellent among men. He places the crowning and the finishing touches on all the work of God. It is for this reason that we've undertaken the huge and humbling task of studying the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Having considered his blessed person as the third person of the Godhead, we are now examining the work of the Spirit. We have sought to define his work, if you remember, under the following definition. He is the ministrator or the minister of life through the righteousness of Christ applied by means of the glorification of Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. Now those of you that have been with us have, those, have that definition in your notes, but for you who have not, I'll mention it again just to give you something of where we find ourselves in this study. He is the minister of life through righteousness by means of the glorification of Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. Now we have studied the first two aspects of this definition, the matter or the substance of the Spirit's work, namely the administration of life. And second, the basis of that administration of life, the righteousness of Christ applied to the sinner, both in imputation, in which the Spirit of God imputes to the believing sinner the righteousness of Christ and makes it on his account so that God judges him as, an un as a godly man rather than ungodly, and also in the application or the impartation of the righteousness of Christ through this gradual ministry that we call sanctification. But now we are studying the third aspect of our definition, the instrument by which the Holy Spirit administers life to God's people. And that instrument essentially has been the preaching of Christ, or the glorification of Christ through preaching. We have studied the central focus and the primary focus of the work of the Spirit from John chapters 14 through 16 as being to testify of Christ, to bear witness of Christ, to glorify Christ, so that it is the work of the Spirit to convict the world of sin because they believe not on Christ, of righteousness because Christ goes to the Father and they see him no more, and of judgment because that in the death of Christ the prince of this world is judged. And so we have established, I believe, the biblical doctrine that the full-orbed focus of the work of the Holy Spirit finds its center in nothing else than Jesus Christ himself and his person and work, so that any teaching or any purported experience of the Holy Spirit 
that does not lead us in a direct line quickly to Jesus Christ is not a biblical teaching or practice. Anything that so focuses upon the so-called Spirit of God without leading us to the cross of Christ, the triumphs and glories of Christ, and the means through which men are saved by Christ is not true doctrine, and it is a false application of the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have sought to elaborate in more detail the work of the Spirit by considering, first of all, the history and the methods of his work. And you remember, maybe, that we've, we've considered in the history of his work the preparation for Christ's coming in the Old Covenant through the prophecy, through the writing of the scriptures, and through miracles which confirmed the prophet's messages from time to time. And then we saw the confirmation of Christ's coming. When the Lord came, the Spirit attended his life and ministry and the ministry of his apostles with signs and confirming miracles. Also, the Spirit raised him from the dead, vindicating his claims and justifying our faith. And then in the book of Acts, we see both what we read today on the day of Pentecost and the development of the church in Acts, how that the Holy Spirit confirmed the coming of Messiah. In the third place, then, we sought to study the elucidation of Christ's person and work. We've seen the preparation for it, the confirmation of it, and now the elucidation of Christ's person and work, and that's under the New Covenant. And we've studied two aspects of that elucidating work. First, we looked briefly at the revelatory gifts that the Spirit gave to the apostles in the early church. He made them able to receive words directly from God to impart them to the church in laying the foundation for a gospel church and gospel truth. And then we saw that the scriptures of the New Testament are the second aspect of the Spirit's work in elucidating the work and the person of Jesus Christ so that he finished the canon of Scripture by giving the New Testament to the apostles and those close to them. He completely provided all that we need to know the will of God in the Scripture and laid down the Bible in its entirety to us by his own breath that the church may know and understand the salvation of God in his Son. This morning we continue in our study of his elucidation of Christ's work and his glorifying of Christ as the instrumentality of his work by considering his indwelling ministry, or we may say the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now be careful to hear, I did not say the gifts of the Holy Spirit, although the gifts of the Holy Spirit are included in the subject of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I trust that as we consider this study, we will see the relationship between the gift, singular, of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the gift of the Spirit, or the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, has some relationship between the Old and the New Covenants. There is, as we have said before, a unity and a diversity in the work of the Spirit between the covenants. Let us say it this way. In the Old Testament, all true believers, those who were, as we have said in our evening series, were members of the invisible Church of Christ, or the real people of God, 
those who were true believers in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit. Enoch walked with God. I ask you, how did he do it? He walked with God through the Spirit. The psalmist in chapter 51 of Psalm, verse 11, cried to God not to take his Holy Spirit away from him. Throughout the Old Testament, the saints were comforted, were enabled to mortify sin, had access to God, were kept, were united, were taught. How were they done? How did they accomplish all this? Unless it was by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a man-centered salvation in the Old Covenant. It was God-centered, it was gracious, and it was dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit just as surely as we under the New Covenant are dependent upon His work. However, in the New Testament there is diversity, there is a change. But what is the change? It is not so much a change in kind as it is a change in degree. Under the New Covenant, the Spirit indwells profusely the entire nation of New Israel, the church, corporately. The difference between the Old and the New Testament as to the ministry of the Spirit is a matter of a profuse degree. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit worked upon some at times and left them at times. The Spirit did various ministries and in each case of true believers did the work of illumination and giving the gifts of faith. However, in the New Testament, he comes upon the entire people of God corporately in unprecedented profusion. That's the essential difference between Old and New Covenant doctrine of the work of the Spirit. So that when the Scriptures speak of the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament, they are not contradicting what, the, what was said in John chapter 7, that the Spirit had not yet been given. The essence there is not that there was no such thing as the Spirit before, or that he had not been around doing anything. The essence is that, relatively speaking, the comparison between the Old Covenant ministry of the Spirit, as we can see it, and the New Covenant ministry of the Spirit, is not comparable. In the New Covenant, he comes in such a way that we may say he had not yet been given. He had not been poured out in the way that we have now seen him to be poured out. Now, in order for us to understand the gift of the Holy Spirit, I want us to survey the biblical witness to this subject. First of all, in the Old Testament. We're going to survey the biblical witness in the Old Testament, the biblical witness in the New Testament, and then draw some conclusions and, the Lord willing, make some applications which I believe are critical to us in this concern. First of all, consider with me a survey of the biblical witness in the Old Testament. In the first place, as we have said, there was such a thing as the gift of the Spirit in the Old Testament. However, this gift is implicitly revealed, not explicitly asserted. It is implicitly revealed, not explicitly asserted. First of all, turn with me to Numbers chapter 27 and look at the ministry of the Spirit implicitly revealed. Numbers 27 
verse 18. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not taught in profuse, explicit terms, but implied clearly. Numbers 27, 18. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Take you, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him. A man in whom is the Spirit. How could that be if the Holy Spirit was never around in the Old Covenant? But he was. And he indwelt believers in the Old Testament. It does not tell us that he was in everybody, but it does tell us he was in Joshua. And that implies that there was the ministry of indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. Turn to Psalm 51, which I just quoted, but I want you to see it. I've said before, I believe, in this pulpit that one of the theologies of modern evangelicalism has wrenched this verse from its meaning and it's caused much confusion in the church. The, the particular view of this theology divides the Old Testament from the New in such radical terms that it is unthinkable that the David could be speaking uh, in the same way that a New Covenant believer would speak when he makes this comment. I'm not sure that's an adequate understanding of the verse Psalm 51, verse 11. He is aware of the depth and the seriousness and the horror and the inexcusableness of his deep sin. He is greatly concerned about the consequences of that sin. He knows that he has sinned against the Lord and in one sense against the Lord alone. The essence of his sin has been against God. And it is God who will judge him. But his greatest fear is expressed in verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. He was a man acquainted with the faithful, regular, precious presence of Jehovah. And his greatest dread was that that presence would no longer be his, that the Lord would cast him away. He remembered what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, that the Lord cast them out of that place of faithful, sweet, unbroken, daily communion with him in paradise and put angels with flaming swords so they could not get back in. He knew something of the spiritual sense of that uh, terrible expulsion and he did not want it to happen to himself. He would welcome the chastenings of God upon his body as we can observe in other times in this man's life. He would welcome God's dealing with him faithfully through the prophet. But don't cast me away from your presence. But see in conjunction with that in the second part of the verse as though it were appositional or something of the same thing, he says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because it is in taking the Spirit from him that God casts him away from his presence. It is when the Spirit of God departs that God has departed and that there's no longer the presence of God felt in the heart, known in the life, comprehended in the mind, giving comfort and encouragement and strength and courage to live. 
Lord, of all things you may do, do not cast me out of your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So implied in those texts, in Numbers and in Psalms and in others in the Scripture, is revealed the doctrine of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But there were other times in the second place in which the gift of the Spirit not only as to its indwelling is implicitly revealed, but special endowments for service as the Spirit is given. Turn to Judges chapter 14. We've only recently read this on the Lord's Day evenings regarding Samson, a man who had extraordinary physical strength, but who violated almost every directive of the Lord for his life throughout his days. He did not keep himself pure from foreign women, from alcohol, from uh, touching dead bodies and carcasses. He broke every uh, part of his vow as a Nazarite. But Samson, nevertheless, is said in verse 6 of chapter 14 of Judges to be a man upon whom the Holy Spirit came. It says, and the Spirit of Jehovah, in verse 6, came mightily upon him and he rent him as he would rent a kid. That was a lion. Here was Samson, confronted by a young, hungry, strong lion, who apparently would have been devoured unless something was supplied for him from God. And what was it? The Spirit of Jehovah came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion as though he would tear a baby goat. He tore him and rent him because of the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And then again in verse 19 of the same chapter, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and smote thirty men of them, and took their spoil and gave the changes of raiment to them that declared the riddle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he destroyed thirty men by himself. Special service endowed by the Holy Spirit. Turn again to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And here we speak of a king whose heart was not right before God. Though in his lifetime he was capable of some of the sweetest and highest expressions of devotion to God, in the heart there resided a pride, in the heart there resided uh, an idolatry that God never removed ultimately and it finally produced the ruin of King Saul. But in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel verse 6 we read, The Spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon you and you shall prophesy with him and shall be turned into another man. Speaking to Saul who was to be anointed or who was anointed king of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord was going to come upon him in such a way that we could say, you're going to be a different person. You'll become another man. The Spirit of Jehovah endowing Old Testament characters for service in special situations. Not necessarily saved men. Not necessarily men in whom he dwelt in saving religion but men whom God used to do his will and gave endowments of his spirit from time to time to do things that otherwise could not have been done. But in the third place regarding the ministry of the gift of the spirit in the Old Testament, 
Also, the Spirit is involved with the corporation of the people of God, similar to the way it is in the New Testament. But the corporation of God's people has it as its founding glue, may we say, the Holy Spirit. Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, verse 10. In verse 9 of Isaiah 63, we've read that the angel of God's presence saved the people. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bared them and carried them all the days of old. An intimate description of God's interest and care for his people. But in verse 10 it says, But they rebelled, and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? The very corporate body of the people of God in the Old Covenant, though a mixed multitude, though not made up, simply and purely of believers, though the majority of them, when their hearts were uncircumcised and not true believers, the Spirit of God was given to dwell in the midst of Israel in the wilderness, and as they were camped out and brought to the new country, Canaan. Well, notice one thing, however. The Lord would not locate his special presence in the very midst of the people in their camp. But if you recall in the law, he put his presence in the tabernacle outside the camp. That was as near as God could dwell in their midst because of their sin and the hardness of their heart. And yet there is Old Testament testimony that in the gathered people of God, God the Spirit dwelt near them in their midst, associated with the very incorporation of the Old Covenant community of faith. But in the fourth place, we notice that also in the Old Testament, there's the anointing of God's servant, capital S, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The Holy Spirit is seen doing an important work, a critical work. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, and we're speaking here of Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. We're in Isaiah 42, 1. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations or the Gentiles. God's spirit was put upon Jesus Christ, anointing him. And then in chapter 61, the same kind of thing is spoken of. And the Lord himself, you remember in Luke 4, quoted this text, applying to himself. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and so forth. The Spirit of Jehovah anointed 
the Son of God. And in the Old Testament, we are told that. And it was not news to an Old Testament believer to read such a thing. He understood something of the ministry of the Spirit of the Lord and was not shocked at such a statement. But in the fifth place, and finally, as we briefly survey the Old Covenant and the Old Testament work of the Spirit, there is in the Old Testament the promise of the coming of the Spirit to abide with the people of God forever in profuse measure. Even in the Old Testament, where it is said that he dwelt in their midst, from whom they did not want to be cast, whose presence they did not want to lose, there is a promise of something better in connection with the Holy Spirit. A coming of the Spirit to abide with the people of God forever, not in seasons and times during some external faithfulness where sometimes he was there and sometimes not, but a sense in which there was a permanent, profuse outpouring of the Spirit on them. And to see that, look in Isaiah 44. There are several texts. We'll not, I believe, read them all, but a sampling of them in Isaiah 44, 3. The Lord speaking of his being the source of their blessing, verse 3 says to them, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and streams upon the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. He is making promise to the descendants of Israel. He is promising to pour out his spirit upon them. A sort of profuse baptism, as it were, in a way they had never experienced it before. But then turn over to Ezekiel, a very famous and familiar text in chapter 37. Verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel 37, 26. Speaking of the new covenant which the Lord is going to make with the house of Israel. Ezekiel 37, verse 26 says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Do you see what God is promising? There's going to come a time when they're not going to have a tent or a building that they have to drag around with them, or that sometimes God's there or sometimes is not, or they're there sometimes and sometimes they're not. But there's coming a day of a continuing, everlasting, profuse presence of God among all his people forever. But verse 27 goes on to describe it. My tabernacle also shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nation shall know that I am Jehovah that sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And then briefly back to chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 27, in the same context, Speaking of the same covenant, the Lord says in verse 27 of chapter 36, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep mine ordinances and do them. And he goes on to describe other blessings promised to the people of Israel. The ministry of the spirit 
was promised in the Old Covenant to the house of Israel in such a way that it would be permanent, profuse, and purifying. It was going to be there everlastingly, not to be taken away. The Spirit was going to be there in great measure, not in small measure. And the result of His presence among them would be they would walk in the Jehovah's statutes. They would keep His ordinances. The Lord could not get that kind of response apart from the impartation, the profuse outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon them. You cannot serve God without God. You cannot do God's will unless God is alive in you to do it. You cannot please God apart from His Spirit. Religion is not an objective thing alone. There is, yes, that objective aspect of our religion. The Word of God, objective truth written down which we must comprehend, we must obey it. And yet without the Spirit of God within us, we will not comprehend it. He that is not of the Spirit does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned and he cannot hear them. And we will not be able to obey those things in the Word of God unless God put his Spirit within us. The reason that some have struggled to keep up with the law of God and have been utterly frustrated is because of the absence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. There are many who want to change, who come under some influence from preaching or witnessing of a friend who's a Christian, who want to change their ways, who want to get out of their problems, who want to escape the wrath of God, and they set about a program of reformation. They begin to change this and to stop that and to add this. They may come to church when they used to not come at all. And for some, they believe that one visit to church a week would be sufficient in its contrast to what they used to do. They feel they've had a complete turnaround of life. Maybe if they give up cigarettes, they think, well, surely now I'm going to be okay. Or maybe they minimize how many twists they have in the sexual realm and they begin to believe there's really been a change but God has a way of thwarting and frustrating such self-help efforts the devil has a way of encouraging them and inciting them and applauding them so as to put the man asleep in his reformation but thanks be to God that many of us who attempted such reformation apart from the power of God's spirit were frustrated and eventually the rug was pulled out from under our feet. And the Lord left us with nothing but utter dependence upon him. So the promise of the coming of the Spirit to abide with his people forever, to provide them a purifying influence by which they would indeed keep his ordinances, is full in the, New Te in the Old Testament. And we read in our text in Acts, the quote from Joel chapter 2, that upon all flesh the Lord was going to pour out his Spirit. Now that's the Old Testament background. The Spirit of God did indwell believers in the Old Testament. He came upon some in special times to endow them for service. He was involved in the very corporation of the people of God. He anointed or was to anoint the servant of God, the Messiah, and he was promised in the Old Covenant to come and abide with his people forever. However, in the New Testament, we have more than an implicit revelation. We have a full-orbed explanation explicit revelation of the coming of the Spirit to the people of God. 
In the New Testament, there's no longer the implication and the, and the mention of him from time to time. In the New Covenant, there's this full orb, flagrant, patent, as it were, explosion of doctrine regarding the Holy Spirit. And this New Testament survey begins in the first place with Christ himself. Remember the Lord in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11? Let's turn and look at that. We could go to any one of the Gospels. All of them mention this ministry. But in Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who introduced the King of Kings and the inaugurator of the New Covenant, the mediator of the New Covenant, tells us in Matthew 3, 11, I indeed baptize you in water or with water under repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear or to unloose. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And that similar language in the other Gospels. The Lord himself was prophesied as coming to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit, to bathe them, to wash them, to cleanse them, to pour out his Spirit upon them and immerse them in his Spirit. That's the significance of the terminology used by John the Baptist. Then in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, a prophecy regarding our Lord's ministry of giving his Spirit to the church. John chapter 7 Verse 37, I trust you bear with me in all these texts. All I'm doing, brethren, is trying to seal it in your minds what the Bible says about the work of the Spirit. What's done so often in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is take off from an experience, elaborate on the experience, and find a few verses to support it. I do not want to approach it that way. I'd like for us to get an honest view of the biblical survey of the material, and from that, come to our conclusions about the work of the Spirit. We have learned that it is Christ who is going to baptize the church with his Spirit. In John 7, verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And you remember what we read from the prophet just previously. I'll give, pour out water to him that is thirsty. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, from him or out of the insides of him shall flow rivers of living water. Well, what kind of a statement is that? And there may have been some of the craftly literal around him who were confounded at such a statement. You're telling us that if a man believes on you, there's going to be water coming out of his tummy? What are you talking about? But we're told by God's word the, he spoke this of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet, and literally the word given is not in the text, but the uh, translators uh, uh, provided in italics, he was not given as yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the sense in which the Spirit was to be poured out upon the church and baptizing the church had not occurred. That had not happened yet. 
because Christ had not taken his seat in heaven. And we won't turn to them, but you'll remember in chapters 14, 15, and 16 in John's Gospel, we've already seen that when I go away, the Spirit will come. He will bear witness of me. He will glorify me. He will lead you into all truth because he'll take of mine and give it to you. He won't speak of himself. He'll speak what he hears. The faithful rendering of Trinitarian truth to the church. So Christ himself is said to be about to baptize the church by his spirit. Well, in the second place, we see the fulfillment of that Old and that New Testament prophecy in the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the community of Christ, the Acts chapter 2. The Old Testament prophesied it. The New Testament has told us that Christ would be the one to do it. Messiah was given the promise of the Father. The promise made to the Son by the Father was that the Son, by virtue of his obedience to the the order of his priesthood was to have the privilege of having the Spirit without measure and of being able to give the Spirit without measure. That was his promise from the Father. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 2, describes the coming of this phenomenon, a sound from heaven, a mighty wind sound, filling the house. And then in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What are we witnessing here, brethren? Are we witnessing an experience that we are to attempt to repeat in church history? Are we to pray for and look for and respond only to these kinds of phenomena so that when the Spirit comes, the house shakes? There's such a roar that whole people living in the area come around to see it. And that tongues of fire come and sit on our hands and part like cloven hooves. And men speak in languages they've never studied, the gospel and the praises of God. Is that what we're reading? No, we're reading an event in which God lent some extraordinary phenomenon so as to confirm and draw attention to an unprecedented historical happening. And that happening was the pouring out of the Spirit on the house of Israel in fulfillment with prophecy. Brethren, do not take issue with that statement, because if you do, you're taking issue with the apostolic interpretation of this event. Simon Peter explained that's what this means. This is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet. This is not some other thing. This is that. He spoke of it. Here it is. They expected it. God promised it. Messiah has now done it. And then over in verse 33, he tells us who did it. He says that Christ was by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's the promise to the Son. The Son has obeyed his commission. He has finished his course. He has laid his life down for the sins of his people. He has kept those that the Father gave him. He has done the will of the Father. Now, having obeyed the Father, he has been exalted on high, raised up and seated in the place of supreme heavenly authority, and he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit made a promise. 
This means that the Spirit is the promise. He is the promised gift given to the Son for the privilege of the Son to pour him out profusely upon the church. And this is exactly what he says. He hath poured forth this which you see and hear. These attending phenomena are explainable. They're explainable by the biblical doctrine of Messiah receiving from his Father the promise of the Spirit and pouring him out. The reason you've heard this racket, the reason you're witnessing our behavior that's a good bit out of the ordinary, the reason that you've seen these phenomena is because God has poured out his Spirit by his Son's hand to whom he had promised this privilege. That nothing could be simpler and clearer in the Bible. Nothing could be simpler. Our words mean nothing. Now some say, well, why do you go to such lengths to say that over and again? Because, brethren, we're living in an age of nothing but confusion virtually on this issue. And some of the confusion has literally led people away from Christ himself and sent them into oblivion and confusion in trusting their religion because they have felt and seen things and attributed it to a Pentecostal experience when it is nothing more than a demonic trick and a, and a, a, a counterfeit. Now, I'm not saying that everything people have experienced of phenomenal nature is counterfeit. I didn't say that. But some people who can point to a phenomenal experience have assumed it must be God because it's phenomenal. And we're saying that that's not the point. This is nothing but the fulfillment of the once and for all pouring out of the Spirit by Christ upon his church. It is never to be repeated. It could never be repeated. Any more than the cross of Christ is ever to be repeated or could ever be repeated or the resurrection could ever be repeated. This is an event in redemptive history. This is not an event that the church is to attempt to duplicate throughout that history. God did this upon the occasion of his son's enthronement and donation. God gave to his son what the scriptures had promised and he fulfilled it. Now, however, it doesn't stop with there. We can read on in the book of Acts in chapter 8. If you'll follow with me, we'll just cite some references. Chapter 8, verse 15. Remember in the Samaritan uh, villages, the gospel was preached and people began to believe it. And then they sent for Peter and John. There were signs and miracles wrought by this deacon Philip. When they were come down, they sent for Peter and John. In verse 15, when Peter and John were come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet it was fallen on none of them, only they had been baptized in the name of Jesus of the Lord Jesus. Now here's an experience in which the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them, yet they had believed in the name of the Lord Jesus and been baptized upon the preaching of Philip and the attending miracles and signs which drew their attention and confirmed his preaching. Why had the Spirit not fallen upon them? I submit to you that the very key here is that he had to be given at the hands of the apostles. What did they do to get him? They called for Peter and John from Jerusalem. Had to have some apostles. This is not Philip the apostle, it's Philip the deacon, who's traveling all over this region preaching, and God's endowed him with great uh, uh, ability. 
even so that he can leave one spot and be in another spot without having to get in the chariot. An extraordinary provision, and yet the Spirit did not come. So they went and got two apostles, they came down, they prayed for them, and the Spirit came upon them. This is God's way of tying the work of the Spirit to the apostolic founding of the church and to apostolic doctrine and apostolic fellowship and apostolic practice. Not any old man can have this privilege. You may remember that one among them saw it, Simon, saw this power to give the Spirit and to produce these results, and he wanted to buy the power. He didn't just want the Spirit, he wanted the power to give the Spirit, and he offered money to the apostles. Teach me how you do this trick. I'll give you, I'll pay you. Yeah, let me in on the inner, inner circle of this, this thing. Reproduce it for me. And you see, that is the worst kind of abomination. You have no part or lot with this matter. You're in the gall of bitterness, my friend. That's what Peter said to him. The guy was left outside the company. He has no part in it. Brethren, you don't repeat this stuff. You don't conjure it up. You don't make it happen. You don't announce in a bulletin on the store window, we're going to have a Holy Ghost meeting on Friday night where people will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's not something you predict. It is the highest form of presumption and maybe blasphemy to say that we are in a position where we can guarantee that at a certain hour, if you'll come and buy your ticket, the Holy Spirit will do certain things. It grieves my heart. I read it and I'm indignant because these are people taking into their own hands a Simon Magus kind of mentality where they think they can purchase the gift of God, be it far from us. Understand, you, God has limited the access to this kind of an experience. God determines when it will happen. Then in chapter 10 of Acts, as we survey it, I believe I'll just refer to this one and then move on because there's so many texts and I want to finish this. Acts 10, verse 44. Preaching to the Cornelius household, while Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them that heard the word. Here's an event in which they didn't have to go get another apostle. There was no prayer made. There were no laying on of hands. While he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them. I thank God that in the book of Acts, the Spirit comes at different times in different ways that the Spirit doesn't always, there's not the same formula for it. You don't have to go through the same ritual. First of all, we kneel here. We need a catcher whenever you fall. We need somebody to put the hands on you. Uh, that, that's not the pattern. One time it's while he's preaching. Another time it's after they've been baptized. Another time it's before they've been baptized. It's all kinds of different uh, uh, phenomena surrounding it. The same event connected with the same preaching of the same gospel. But in chapter 10, verse 45, they of the circumcision that believed were amazed, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what we're having here, it wasn't quite so amazing that the Spirit was given to Samaritans. That was a break away from close Judaism. And you see the connection here between the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the Spirit. You remember we're talking about the universal church without ethnic restriction. That's a change in the way the Old Covenant was administered. Well, here we have it. We're breaking out of the bounds of Israel, of Judea. Now, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth you're going to preach. And when the gospel is believed, the Spirit's going to come. That's going to be evidence that the gospel of Christ is the true one. 
And so here we are, Samaria. Now we're going out to the Gentiles. And now the Jews are amazed that on the Gentiles is poured out the Holy Spirit. And then finally we'll refer to chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, as Peter recites this experience. Listen carefully. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now do you notice something here? Here is the phenomenon of the coming of the Spirit during the preaching of the gospel of Christ to a, na a heretofore unschooled audience. And the Holy Spirit who comes upon them at the hearing of the gospel and causes them then to praise God in other languages which they had never learned is associated with the prophecy of Christ himself who said, John indeed baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is given in the hearing of the gospel which is centered on Christ and that event is the fulfillment of Christ's promise to baptize his people with the Spirit. And we'll apply that in a moment. But notice this as we continue, just under this second point of the fulfillment of the promise. Not only was there an extraordinary universal coming of the Spirit, and that's what we've been reading in Acts, as the Spirit is given to an ever-widening a group of people from Jerusalem all the way out, not only extraordinary, and these obviously were extraordinary moments where the Spirit is poured out and things that are uncommon to human experience occur, but also the Spirit was given and is given ordinarily in local churches, not just extraordinarily upon the universal church showing the, the essence of the breakdown of the ethic, uh, ethnic barriers, but the Spirit is given as well to local churches ordinarily. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What we're saying here, brethren, I'm trying to save you from overreacting. On the one hand, we've got this problem of an overemphasis or a false emphasis of the Holy Spirit where everybody's out trying to speak with tongues, everybody's taking claims, everybody's looking for experience. It's very confusing. Some of us who do not uh, go along with some of those are accused of not even believing in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're looked upon as those who, who are afraid of the power of God, who don't believe in the power of God. We know that's not the case, but they don't know that. And some sincere people are, feel sorry for us because of our position. But it, the danger is that in reacting to that false or extravagant application of the doctrine of the Spirit, where we would limit it to a universal past experience, we might miss the fact that there's an ordinary local church endowment of the Holy Spirit and giving of the Holy Spirit as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know you not, he's writing to the church in Corinth, a local assembly, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is no phenomenon of a breaking through heretofore unbroken ethnic barriers. Corinth was just one of many Gentilish, and with a lot of Jews in this church, coming out of the synagogue in Corinth. 
This was nothing extraordinary, and the church was not founded extraordinarily. The preaching of the gospel, the reasoning of Paul in the synagogue, finally moving out of the synagogue, and many of the people were made believers by God. This is just ordinary, and this local church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and see it again. Now, what I'm trying to do now is trying to cultivate in your mind and prepare you for the acceptance expected presence and ministry and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. I want, to, I want to sensitize your thinking to that. I don't want you to be afraid of thinking of that. I want you to see it. I want you to understand it, that without him and his presence and his life and his work and without his sense presence, there's much missing in us. In fact, if he weren't at work, we wouldn't be able to be here at all. Ephesians 2.19 you are no more strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens of the saints. Now, look at what he's doing. He's talking about the church. He's talking about that in the gospel of Christ, that barrier that separated Jews and Gentiles has been broken down, and the subject is the church. But notice what is the essence of the proof and evidence and the blessing that is ours because we've been added to the commonwealth of Israel. The wall's been broken down by the cross of Christ, and what's the immediate result of that broken down wall as far as our privileges are concerned? Verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. What has changed is that not only is the Spirit's presence not limited any longer to Israel in the wilderness, but now he is profusely poured out upon men from every tongue and tribe and nation who gather together in the worship of Christ to follow his order and to please him. They are all indwelt by the same spirit. There's one body. There's one spirit. So there's the individual and ordinary local church experience of the indwelling spirit of God. But then there's further experience of the indwelling of the spirit in each individual. And I made that my third point in our New Testament survey. What I've just done was, a, was an application of the second point of the fulfillment of the promise. But now there's the individual indwelling of each believer. I don't have time to go through all the texts. Let me just refer you to Romans 8. You remember Romans 8? There are 20, at least 20, explicit references in the 8th chapter of Romans as to the Spirit's application of salvation to the individual. The Holy Spirit's work in an individual believer, 20 times at least in Romans 8 it's mentioned. It's mentioned three times in Acts chapter 2 of the individual experience. Let me show you one, Acts chapter 2, and I know some of you are trying to turn to Romans 8, and I don't mean to confuse you, but that's why I ask you not to. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, 
repent you and be baptized every one of you, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins and you, every one of you who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of sins will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise here is that to everyone that believes on Christ, the Spirit will be given, individually given, in order to indwell the individual. In 1 Corinthians 10, and don't turn there, there are ten times in which the Spirit's work on individuals and in individual Christians is mentioned. But I'll read just a couple of other texts regarding the individual ministry of the Spirit and you'll see that this is not some theoretical thing that is not to be pursued. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Brethren, don't be dis distracted by the things that happen in this building. I have no doubt as to the reason they continue to happen. I, I refuse to allow them to ruin me, but I observe it in the weakness of our flesh. Often you're concerned about what's happening. Uh, we must give our attention to the things of the truth to which God has called us and not be deterred uh, by the matters that are more and more evident in our time of a generation that is not patient with the Word of God. And I trust that you will not allow that to keep you from enjoying the privileges that God's given to you. Verse 32 of chapter 5 of Acts. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to them that obey Him. That's an individual, everyone that obeys Him, God's given the Spirit to it. There's a promise. There are lots of other texts. I'll not read them all, but just to assume and underline it, let me quote Romans 5, 5, when the Lord said, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. There is the expectation that every believer upon Christ has the Spirit and is indwelt by the Spirit. And all sorts of the fruits of that are evident in which we're going to have to take up at another time. But the Spirit is ordinary, normally, predictably, in every believer upon Christ. There are no exceptions. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, he is none of his. You cannot be a Christian without having the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. The individual indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer. But quickly, in the fourth place, before we come to our conclusion, and one major application, the Spirit endows every believer for service. Christ himself has prophesied that he would give him and baptize us with him. That promise has been fulfilled in the universal church. It is seen ordinarily in the local church. Individuals are indwelt by the Spirit. And finally, the Spirit endows every believer for service. Remember we said that the Holy Spirit is not only the administrator of life and the minister of truth, but also the quartermaster of service. And that's why our definition says we are brought into conformity to Christ in the church. So that 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of one body, the church, whom the Spirit gifts in its various members as he wills, so that all may profit. So the Spirit's work of administering, administering life, 
by the truth as it is in Jesus is done in the context of the Christian church. He baptizes the church. He baptizes us into one body, the church. And he supplies that church with gifts. Now let me make a couple of statements. The Spirit is permanently in every Christian and it's the ordinary experience of every Christian. And every believer has ordinary gifts of the Spirit or a gift of the Spirit for service. Do you believe that? Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We are nearly coming to the end, so bear with me so that we can get this established. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all. The sense of that text is that the Spirit is given in a way to each believer so that each believer has an aspect of the Spirit's ministry and supply, a manifestation of the Spirit, so that that believer, every believer, may profit all the rest of them. And you recall that in 1 Corinthians 12, and as we learn in 1 Corinthians 13, from which we'll hear again tonight, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, the whole focus continues to draw us back to the mutual edification. The whole purpose of the thing is for others. This has never been something that I'm supposed to sit around enjoying just for myself. That is not designed primarily for me to gloat on it or to find evidence that I'm a Christian from this. These are not primary evidences of Christian faith. They are supplies given to every saint. Everyone receives the manifestation of the Spirit to profit with all, to profit the rest, to profit the church. So the ministry here is a ministry of love for the brethren and of serving God in the church and helping the brethren. Now these are ordinary gifts. Every one of you has one, at least one. God supplied you with a ministry of service endowed by the Spirit, and it is inexcusable for you to live in the church without doing something in ministering to the brethren. It is not because you can't, because the Spirit has endowed you for something. It is probably because you have not sought to cultivate that endowment, you have not sought communion with the Spirit, and you're sitting dull and unworthy and unserviceable because you've not developed this whole context and whole concept. Maybe some of you have fallen prey to the overreaction. You're scared of talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And so you don't even want to think about it. Well, I tell you, you better think about it because you've got one. The Spirit has endowed you. He hasn't endowed all of you to do the same thing. There's no need for two, to- two big toes on the same foot. Or three eyeballs. God knows how he's fixed it. He's got the church with all of its needs met. And if every one of us is submitted to Christ and cultivating those gifts, we'll find an increased measure of mutual edification and much rejoicing in the context of it. Every believer is given something with which to profit the rest. It may be a simple thing. But I tell you, some of the sweetest gifts of the people of God are not in those that stand in the pulpit with their mouths open, getting all the attention. 
both the glory and the blame. It is often with those who just have a tendency of a spirit and they just seem to know how and when to use the words of, of comfort or encouragement or service. It's the guy that hardly says anything that's always there when you need him. Always noticing needs. Always serving. Those are the kinds of gifts that may not appear to be so comely and appealing, but they're the ones that make the church click. They're the ones that keep things rolling. They're the ones that keep peace and keep mutual sense of joy and the prosperity of God going in the church, and that facilitates the Word of God. Well, we don't have time to indulge in, a, in an in-depth study of the gifts of the Spirit, but the ordinary experience of every believer is to have a permanent endowment for service in the church. However, there are other gifts listed that are extraordinary. I'm just going to make the statement Perhaps at another time we can prove it. We have preached a series on this in the past, and I believe the tapes could be found in which you may get some further help. But let me suggest that the extraordinary endowments of the Spirit are limited to the apostolic generation and were temporary. They're not permanent. We especially mentioned the revelatory gifts, the gifts that made men able to speak infallible words directly from God. Those are no longer needed. They have been withdrawn at the completion of the scripture. They were for the foundation of the church and the apostles and prophets and they don't look, we don't look for them. We don't trust them. We don't, aren't impressed by the claims to have them in our day. Now that's a simple statement without having time to give great support for it but trusting that you are familiar enough with the text of scripture to see the point. Well let me summarize this by asking a question. What then is the gift of the Spirit? Several words are used in the New Testament to speak of the Spirit. The seal of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. The earnest of the Spirit in the next verse in Ephesians 1, in 2 Corinthians 1, in 2 Corinthians 5. The earnest of the deposit or the down payment of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit, which we saw in our text in Acts. Also Acts 10 and Titus chapter 3. The outpouring of the Spirit. In Titus 3, the outpouring of the Spirit is connected with regeneration. It's seen in the same context. Who has, re through the renewing of the Holy Ghost, whom his, who has been richly poured out upon us. The baptism of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we have all been baptized into one body. The anointing of the Spirit. In 1 John 2, every one of you has an anointing and you need not that any man teach you. Words that are used in the New Testament speaking of the Spirit. Well, what are we talking about? I submit to you that all of those words and all of that imagery is summarized under the doctrine of the gift of the Spirit. Not the gifts, remember, but the gift. God has given His Spirit in an extraordinary, unrepeated event at Pentecost to the universal church and has brought historical attention to that pouring out as testimony that Jesus is indeed our Savior and may be trust to save us from our sins when we believe upon him. And the Spirit has been given ordinarily to every believer throughout this age of the church and has endowed every believer with the capacity of serving in the church. Now, let me prove my point that this imagery is all about the gift of the Spirit. And let me teach you that the baptism of the Spirit, or even being baptized in or with the Spirit, is no different from the gift. 
of the Spirit. It is not separate, and let me prove it by showing you the text again in Acts 11. This is our concluding consideration this morning, and I believe it is the most important because of the history in which we live. You recall that in chapter 10 of Acts with Cornelius, in verse 45, we read the description, verse 45 of Acts 10, that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see the two terms, poured out and gift. On the Gentiles, poured out and gift. But look at chapter 11, verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, even as on us at the beginning. So he's describing that on the household of Cornelius, the same thing that happened at the day of Pentecost happened here. All the attending phenomena weren't present. But the same thing as far as the Spirit falling on them took place. And then in verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we have in verse 45, to which he's alluding, the word poured out, the word gift. We have in verse 16 of verse chapter 11, the word baptized. All three terms used for the same event, same experience. Baptism, outpouring, and gift. Verse 17, he goes further. If then God gave unto them the like gift, as he did also unto us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? The word gift is identified explicitly with the word baptism in the ministry of the Spirit. They are one and the same thing. Or the Apostle Peter has greatly confused the church. Baptism is a word picture describing the gift of the Spirit, just as outpouring, falling upon, endowment, earnest, uh, baptism, seal. These are terms, word pictures, describing the gift of the Spirit. Who gets the gift of the Spirit? Some believers who happen to hit it lucky and fall into a church setting in which they believe in this thing, whereas we Baptists don't. I have, if you've experienced it in Albany, been told by Pentecostal friends that, oh, you're Baptist, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Apparently because their pastors told them we don't. Or maybe they read it someplace. Or maybe they just assumed it. Or maybe they went to some Baptist church and they were so dead they figured that they were accurate in in declaring it. And that may be the case. Some Baptists apparently don't believe in the Holy Spirit. But it's not because we don't believe in tongues as a current phenomenon or in direct revelations coming out of the congregation at will, willy-nilly. That's not proof that we don't believe in the Spirit. Or you've had the question from some of your friends, many of them sincere, have you got the baptism? Or have you been baptized with the Spirit? Let me tell you how to answer that question. I believe it's the soundest and best way to answer it. It's the most gracious and it's the most truthful. When a man or a woman says, Do you have or have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, if God has saved you from your sins, you are safe and accurate and fully right to say, Absolutely, yes, brother. 
Now, you will probably have an ensuing conversation to follow because that doesn't satisfy him. Because there are certain kinds of language he's expecting to hear from you to prove to him. Cult language. I don't mean the language of a cult, but a type of accepted language that's uh, looked for before people will believe you got it. You don't have to answer those questions. He'll usually say, well, I'm, you know what I mean. I'm talking about, do you have you spoken with tongues as evidence? No, I haven't spoken with tongues as evidence any more than the numbers of people in the book of Acts who did not speak in tongues when they got it. There are three events in which they did speak in tongues. There are many more in which they did not. I'm like those. I'm not one of John the Baptist's disciples. I'm not a, 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 a member of the household of Cornelius, the first Gentiles, and I wasn't there on the day of Pentecost. I've never spoken in languages that I've not studied. I'm not saying God couldn't do it. I'm just saying I haven't done it, and that doesn't prove anything. I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you these directives. First of all, do not confuse the baptism of the Holy Spirit with regeneration. I have said the gift of the Spirit and the baptism are the same thing. I have not said that the baptism of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, is the same as regeneration. It is not. How do I know that? Well, because... Regeneration is the sovereign work of God in bringing to life a dead sinner and giving to him the gifts of faith and repentance by which he exercises those things under justification, at which point then the person who is believing upon Christ receives the gift of the Spirit. We're not saying it's not the Spirit that's working in regeneration, but that's not the same as the gift. The gift of the Spirit is by virtue of faith, not in order to face. The work of the Spirit who regenerates is the one that brings about the new life. But it is when you believe upon Christ that you receive the gift. It is not the Spirit standing back uninvolved waiting for you to believe then he can join. It is the Spirit involved in bringing out faith and giving the gift of faith and then in an extra measure, may we say, Christ gives to you the abiding indwelling Spirit who has regenerated you to live in you and to equip you to serve and to sanctify you through your days. Do not confuse baptism of the Holy Spirit with regeneration. They're not the same. However, in the second place, do not separate the two. You're not regenerated one day and several years later when you learn the secret get the baptism. The baptism is not for a select few Christians who have found the secret. The baptism on the gift of the Spirit is not for those who learn the formula of how to make it happen or who submit to a minister who knows how to pull the, put the hands just right. The baptism is not a result of excruciating prayers that God would pour. The baptism of the Spirit takes place in conjunction with and in the same time as regeneration. They're not identical things, but they're never separated. How do we know that? Well, we've already read in the book of Acts, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and baptize, baptize unto repentance, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has given the Spirit to all those who obey Him. In Galatians chapter 3, you began in the Spirit, you continue in the Spirit. But what we're saying is that when and if you repent and believe upon Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The issue, dear brethren, is repentance from sin. 
and faith in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you do not have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. There's no real life and no real hope for those who don't have the Spirit. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Spirit. You cannot be saved and not have the Spirit. Don't attempt to give the Spirit to somebody who says he's a Christian. And don't challenge a Christian at the point of not having the Holy Spirit. There is more to the subject. We will study it, God willing. But at this point, let us for now be content to learn this principle. Do not separate regeneration from the baptism of the Spirit. They are not the same thing, but they're always there at the same time. You never believe on Christ except that you get the Holy Spirit. You never have the Spirit unless you believed on Christ. Dear brethren, I reject the Catholic charismatic movement, not just because of the phenomenon which I question, but because it is not required of a Catholic charismatic to repudiate his doctrine of the atonement as to the sufficiency of Christ's once and for all death in order to receive the Spirit. He is granted the promise of the profuse outpouring of the Spirit apart from the biblical gospel. I repudiate that nonsense and that blasphemy. You cannot have the Spirit unless you have repented from your sins and believed upon and only upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the devil has done has supplied many people in this culture with an experience that cannot be explained as a way to keep them from the simple things of Christ. Dear brethren, let us not be confused on this issue and let us not be held hostage to this issue. Do not let a man have fellowship with you because you got it. You're in fellowship with those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity and with no others. And get strong on that principle. And I think even the text that we've read will help you. If you just look back at what God says is identified as the baptism and the gift and when it happens and what by virtue of what it happens, nothing could be plainer in the Bible. That's one of the reasons I get so profoundly confused as to why people would believe it who carry their Bibles around with them. It is a disarming thing that people who love their Bibles and have them marked with all colors have fallen prey to this. But I tell you, emotional experience is powerful. Well, I also say this. The Holy Spirit is not limited to a select few of God's people. In the Roman Church, they believe in the gift of the Spirit, but they only believe it applies to the priests in the hierarchy. If I read my history right and my theology right. Brethren, every one of you has an endowment of the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. And I dare say there's no question and no, no rumor, there's no confusion about why the Roman Catholic Church is full of dead men's bones, both figuratively and literally. The churches, when you walk in, it's dead. It's ritual. Even the gospel is read, but it's dead. Truth is read, but it's dead. Their theology has provided the way for a life of religion without the Spirit of God. I leave the church today with this, and we're only scratching the surface. We've got to go much further, but I leave you with this. Brethren, let us not be content without the profuse, normal, 
expected sweet warm operations of the Holy Spirit that are visible to us and I don't mean extraordinary and phenomenon I mean in the holiness of our lives in the pregnancy of our delight in worship in our principal living in our sweet hearts as we draw near to God in worship in the way we sing in the way we love the brethren and all the fruit that flows from the Spirit let us not be content with having good doctrine with having a solid eldership or a good membership or faithful attendance or any of the others unless God the Spirit dwell in our midst and we see the evidences of it brethren we are of all men most to be pitied let us cry to God that he'll pour out increased measures of that which is the possession of everyone who has believed upon Christ. And let us not let anybody rob us of what we do have through some of this theology that has fallen prey to the ignorance of our day. May God help us to, to undergird our minds with what the Bible says and draw accurate conclusions from it. May the Spirit of God be seen at work glorifying Christ in our midst in increasing measure. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for giving to me a patient and a gracious audience. I ask, O oh God, that you would pursue our hearts to understand these things, and that if any are in our midst whom we suspect are, who have not tasted of the life of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus, that you, O oh Spirit, might come and make the truth real to the heart, and Lord, for those of us that have been acquainted with you for so long and yet see in ourselves such measures of dryness and dullness and coldness, we would pray that the fruit of Christ's dying love would not be diminished among us, but would we be increased, and that others would see the profuse evidence of the workings of your Spirit so that they would know that our Savior